Welcome to the conversation. I'm Anna Kasparian, and I'm excited to interview our next guests. We have Stephanie Kelton and Andres Bernal on to discuss the deficit myth, a new book written by Stephanie Kelton. And we're gonna have a discussion about the economy. Just to give you a little more of an introduction, Stephanie Kelton is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. She's also a leading expert on modern monetary theory, which is what we're gonna discuss on the show today. And Andres Bernal is a was born in Bogota, Colombia and immigrated to the United States as a child. He has a bachelor's of arts in philosophy from the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley and a focus on existentialism, political economy and social theory. This is some heavy stuff, but I'm really happy to have you guys on the show today. Nice to be with you. Great to be here. So let's talk a little bit about the deficit myth. Deficits have been in the news today. Bernie Sanders wrote a wonderful op-ed in the Washington Post about how the topic of deficits always comes up when it comes to government programs to help the poor. But it never comes up when we discuss, let's say, military spending. So what exactly is the deficit myth? Well, it's not just a single myth, it's really a web of myths that's wrapped around this idea that the federal government ought to be budgeting like a household. And that when the government spends more into the economy than it taxes back out, that this is inherently wrong, that it's doing something um, irresponsible when it engages in deficit spending. And there are a number of myths that follow from this, the belief that these deficits are somehow a threat to our future, our children and our grandchildren, that they're going to do us great harm in one form or another, driving up interest rates, leading to crowding out of private investment and slower growth. I mean, as I said, lots of myths wrapped around this, but at the core is this idea that when the government runs a deficit, it is doing something wrong, it is um, ill-advised, and that it is should be um, balancing its budget just like a good old household. So how does that make sense? If the federal government is spending more than it's taking in, how is that, how is that not a, a negative for how the government's behaving? Could we you know, hit a wall at some point and could uh, there be serious ramifications? Like at what point uh, are we thrown off a balance that's healthy? Well, okay, so a lot of people, this is a really good question because people really just don't understand uh, much at all about the federal government's budget. And so when they hear deficit, it rings in their head as their own personal finances. And so it sounds like something that's risky, that's dangerous, that's bad. But what you just said is um, interesting because it's asking the question, what does the government's deficit mean for the rest of us? Mm -hmm. And so my example would be, suppose the government spends $100 into the economy, but it only taxes 90 of those dollars back out. Okay, that's a government deficit. But what we often forget is that if the government drops 100 in and only takes 90 back out, that the rest of us get left with 10. Every deficit is good for someone. And this is why the Republicans like to run budget deficits, because they understand quite well that deficits are good for someone. The government's deficit is nothing more than a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. The question is for whom and for what purpose? 
So it's interesting because you know, just going back to the first question that I had, the government seems to have absolutely no problem when it comes to deficit spending to inflate the military budget. But what type of deficit spending would actually be positive for the country, for the American people? And what exactly is modern monetary policy? Because I see a lot, I mean, I've seen AOC bring that up, the importance of modern monetary theory. And I think that, you know, bringing these issues up is important, but I don't think the vast majority of Americans really understand what any of this means. So can you break it down in layman's terms? Hi, Anna. Well, that's a great question. And just to really quickly, when in your introduction, actually, what I'm doing now is studying public policy at the doctoral level and advising many political candidates, including Alexandria Ocasio Cortez during her 2018 race, and now some others that are now running for office as well. And it's a very important question because what the government can use an expanded deficit for are the things that we really need. The things that are very important for the people in this country. So, for example, canceling student debt, offering tuition-free public education, and most importantly, saving the planet with a Green New Deal. So, these are things that, at the moment, we don't take action on because we're so afraid of this question of how are we going to pay for it. When in reality, people have a deficit in things that really matter, which is their quality of life our environment, the the quality of our air and of our water, and our ability to be able to mobilize our resources to build a uh, economy grounded in renewable energy. So with deficit spending, we run up a debt. Am I correct in saying that? I want to make yes. sure I get this right. Okay, so what so happens- Deficit spending adds to this thing that we call the national debt. Yes. Right, exactly. Okay, so what happens as the national debt continues to grow? Like at what point does it become a problem? Well, look, the the risk of running budget deficits is not that you're going to run out of money, that you're going to bankrupt the country. The federal government's finances work very differently from the finances of a household, a private business, or even a city or a state. The, the city of Detroit is not like the federal government of the United States. Federal government of the United States is not like Greece, okay? The difference being that the US government is the issuer of the US dollar. And what that means is that the federal government is not constrained financially the way that you and I are, the way that Andres and I are, okay? So the question you're asking is, at what point could there be a problem? And the answer is that if the government, if Congress exercises the power of the purse irresponsibly in the sense that they spend too much into the economy and the economy can't absorb all of that additional spending, that we're at full employment, there's no way for production to keep up with the additional strain, the additional demand, and you get inflationary pressure. So that's really where you wanna look when you're looking for problems associated with the budget deficit. You wanna say, is this deficit causing economic problems? Is it putting pressure on inflation? That's evidence that the deficit deficit is getting too large. Today we have a deficit that's right around a trillion dollars and no evidence that inflation is pushing up against the Fed's 2% target, which is why 
In my opinion, the trillion-dollar deficits we have today aren't an economic problem. The trillion-dollar deficits we have today are a problem in the sense that they're not being deployed in the broadest interest of lifting up the people who most need the help. These deficits are being run for the purpose of further enriching the people who are already doing extraordinarily well. Yeah, you're you're exactly right about that. And and one question that I have, and I, I believe it's related, you know, the Federal Reserve continues getting bullied into quantitative easing, right? So, the, like, they keep lowering interest rates. And I'm curious what your thoughts on that are, because there are a number of economists that are really like ringing the alarm on that. They think that it's. Uh, going to have a negative impact. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve is printing money and offering it to banks at incredibly low interest rates. That has lowered the interest rates for savings accounts for average Americans, and it's been negative in that regard. And it's been encouraging Americans to take on more debt. But how is that involved in the work that you do? Because I'm curious if you think that it's as much of a problem as other economists see it. Well, look. So the, you mentioned the national debt mm -hmm. in the previous question, and now we're talking about interest rates. And so what's interesting is interest rates have a variety of potential effects on the economy. But when the Fed holds interest rates low, one of the things that it does is it means that the interest that's being paid to bondholders is reduced relative to what it would have been if the Fed had been raising interest rates. So if you like, you say, well, you know, people who hold bonds tend to be wealthier people. And if they're receiving larger interest payments, that's bigger interest income uh, for wealthier individuals. And so mm -hmm. by keeping interest rates down, the Fed is, in a sense, depriving bondholders of a larger subsidy. So, you know, the Fed is keeping interest rates low. I'm not sure that I would agree that it's under duress or under pressure. The Fed is not doing QE at the moment. The Fed is just keeping interest rates low because as Jerome Powell and others have explained, they're waiting for real signs that inflation is becoming um, you know, problematic, that we're gonna see signs of 2% and potentially higher before they begin to raise interest rates. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable monetary policy stance that the Fed is taking at the moment. And, and a really quick, yeah. just to add to what Stephanie is saying um, and your question about modern monetary theory. So what we're talking about here is an analytical lens that we use to think about the way that our economy already operates and the role of money in that economy. Um, so a lot of people kind of misunderstand what we're talking about and think that we're just talking about just you know printing money or things like that. But really, it's it's a framework to understand how things actually operate, and then have a conversation about how do we actually want to use government spending and for what per political purposes. Mm -hmm. And you know, many of us we advocate for for very progressive political purposes that have to do with improving the quality of life of uh, all. Americans and the world really. And really that's that's an investment in the economy when you really think about it. Because if people are educated, they have better paying jobs and they have disposable income, then they have the ability to buy products. I mean, that's the way that the economy is supposed to function. And with this crippling inequality, it's becoming more and more difficult for middle class people to go out there and spend to stimulate. So this is super interesting work. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain it. Stephanie Kelton, the name of the book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you to you as well, Andres. No problem. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having All us. Right. We'll be right back with another interview.
All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, joining me now in studio is Robert Greenwald. He's uh, at, of course, Brave New Films. You guys have seen him many times. He's uh, now directing uh, the, the movie Suppress, The Fight to Vote. He's also uh, one of the best progressive uh, fighters in the country, one of the best uh, people in the country, but I'm biased. <laughs> Thank um, you. So great to have you here, Robert. Good to be uh, back. I, I'm gonna embarrass you further. Uh, he is <laughs> Uh, won awards from the ACLU, Physicians for Social Responsibility, Office of the America's Activists in the Trenches. He's got a Liberty Hill Upton Sinclair Award, a Robert Wood Johnson Award, and a Peacemaker Award. How's that? Okay. Just to let you know, I'm not really biased. He actually <laughs> is one of the best progressives in the country. All right. So, uh, Robert, uh, you got a movie out about uh, voter suppression. We talked about it earlier in the show, actually, in, in terms of the uh, now they're doing it in Georgia and Wisconsin again, yep. again. So tell us what the overall issue is first and then why you made the movie. The movie is about voter suppression because all the other, if you believe in voting and you believe in democracy, not everybody does, but if you do, every other issue pales unless people are able to vote. So zillions of dollars and incredible amount of work is going into registering people and getting people to vote. But then if they get to the polls and they can't vote because of organized, planned and for the most part legal voting suppression, then the whole uh, issue becomes how do we make change through the electoral process. Others believe there are other ways to make change. But if you believe in the electoral process and people are literally denied their vote, uh, it's quite uh, an issue and an important one. We got involved because I'd seen a few things about Georgia and I thought, well, maybe we'll do a five minute piece. Well, as I got into it and the researchers and the producers kept coming to me with stories, I really had moments where I felt I was not in this country. I was in some other country. Wonderful, patriotic, 89-year-old guy closing his polling place, he wouldn't be able to vote. Student voting for the first time was denied the right to vote. People waiting, on, how long would you wait online to vote? Well, I mean, I, I gotta do the show. On the other hand, ain't nobody taking my vote away. But it is, I mean, I'm busy, busy, busy. And so if I have to wait longer than 10 minutes, I am get super antsy. Two hours, three hours, four hours, and six hours. People who have jobs. How can you wait six hours if you got a job? It's you, insane. Well, you get, you're being pen, penalized, you're losing pay. So in a way it becomes a, a financial burden as well as the amount of time. And as you see in the film, which is free by the way, as all our films are, you see the incredible toll it takes on people's soul and spirit and lifeblood. Yeah, by the way, bravenewfilms.org slash suppressed if you wanna watch the movie. We'll have the link down below later on YouTube and Facebook if you're watching. And also we're trying to have by 2020, a goal by the 2020 election is 2020 screenings around the country. Yeah. We're at 950, I assume by the time we finish we'll be at 2000, thanks to your audience. <laughs> so there's a strong goal there for all of that's you out there. That's right, well you guys are mighty. Uh, so, look, uh, what you're saying about if you don't have the right to vote, everything else is pointless, uh, is the argument I make about money in politics. We, there are certain core issues re regarding electoral politics that if we don't straighten that out, we don't have a democracy. Then, then the other issues become moot because you can't actually choose your own representatives, your own senators, your own governors. And so, that, this is one of those. But you mentioned something there that was interesting. You said uh, sometimes this is legal. So what do you mean by that? Well, it is 
legal in the sense that they're not going in and overtly breaking the law. But what they're doing, and you can see it in the film, we lay it out, by the way, eight or nine different tactics where it's moving polling places. Well, it's legal to move a polling place, mm-hmm. but what happens is they move them in from African American areas, so they have to wait in line longer, students have to wait in long line. Long lines are a question of resource allocations. So they literally had polling stations locked up in closets when there were areas of Georgia and other parts of the country where people waited these incredible times. Perfect match. Your exact name with maybe a hyphen is on your social security. It's slightly different without the hyphen, same name on your driver's license. Can't do it. We have an Iraq war veteran who says it was easier for him to vote from Iraq absentee ballot than it was when he was in the state next to Georgia. So those are the the tactics that he used. Now, the conservatives, the right wing Republicans have been incredibly smart. They've been strategic. It's infuriating, but they've planned this. And as one of our experts says, Dr. Carol Anderson, it's not it's not a Ku Klux Klan guy. It's bureaucrats all around the state and around the country in different states who are organizing and doing this, which is why I feel so passionately about the film and making it available for people to see and then take action. So Robert, if it turned out that it was random and in some states it favored Republicans and other states it favored Democrats, well, that'd be a different issue. Like, oh, well, they had to clean up the voter rolls, we get it and it was even, but it's never even. Never, like so in Wisconsin, the latest one, Madison and Milwaukee are more Democratic. They represent about 14% of the voters, but of the voters purged, they were 23% of the voters purged, not 14. And 55% of the people that were purged were Democrats, so a giant 10 point lead for Republicans on that. And these are really close elections in places like Wisconsin and Georgia. So what can Democrats do? Well, I mean, there's the Voting Rights Act. This, is any of this applicable anymore, or can Republicans just cheat whenever they want and they just we got to throw up our hands? No, we don't throw up our hands. We fight like hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get out there, we organize, and there are actions we can take. So there's a series of lawsuits. There are great groups all around the country. I'm particularly familiar with Stacey Abrams, a heroine of the highest proportion. Her a group in Georgia, and they're now going nationally to work on this. The ACLU has done amazing work around the country. Mm-hmm. Black Votes Matter, the list goes on and on. It's not one cause, and it's not one solution. So you find the group, or you find the way you think is the strongest way to raise some hell, legally, electorally, picketing, marching, showing up, uh, lawyers are gonna be at the voting places. There's a whole, there's really quite a large number of tactics. And the good news is, in some states there have been changes and voting is being made more available, same day voting, you know, uh, former felons voting. So there is progress. Unfortunately, the last three days have been a horror show of the reason for the movement. 500,000 people between Georgia and Wisconsin have been purged, half a million people. Yes, and the Wisconsin governor who's a Democrat won by only 30,000 votes. They get rid of 230,000 people on the voter rolls. Well, then he's far less likely to win reelection. So which leads me to the next question. So the Democratic Party is forever too civil, right? 
And I'm wondering why. So Stacey Abrams is a great example of the opposite direction. Like we love her because she fought back. She didn't concede the election, she said they cheated, right? And so, and I, I remember the Democratic Party getting really nervous, like, well, I'll do what? No, we don't say that. But they did cheat, and they targeted African American voters in specific. And that election was also razor thin. If they hadn't cheated, she almost certainly would have won. Uh, for sure. And I mean, for sure. And when I started, I wasn't sure was it the boy who cried wolf? But I got to tell you, a few weeks into it, where Incident after incident, number after number, and in, in Stacey Abrams' speech, she says, you know, that she will not concede. We call it the speech now because <laughs> it was so powerful and yes. so strong and so right. Because, and this is a, you know, this is a woman of incredible integrity and the class, and she was saying they took it away. And the numbers are very clear. Any one of the tactics, had they not used it successfully, she would have won the election. She would have been the governor of Georgia. So Stacey Abrams is a shining example of fighting back. So what on God's green earth could explain the rest of the Democratic Party? Because when these things happen, yes, they, would, they do the lawsuits. I want to give credit where credit is due, and they do do some tactics. But overall, they just they don't say the word I just said. They cheated. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you rob African Americans of the right to vote, you are cheating, and you do it for racist reasons. But they seem reluctant to say that, even as, and this should be an easy one, it's a layup. There's no corporate donors here, there's no you know, influence of money. Mm -hmm. This is their actual power that's on the line. My God, if you don't fight on this, you ain't gonna fight on anything. So what do you, why? Why won't the Democrats be more aggressive here? Well, if we had maybe three or four hours, we could have a deep <laughs> discussion about psychology and policy and bureaucracy and bad habits and people who get used to losing. But I do think, because I tend to look at the potential, I do think the potential on this issue is really important for all the reasons you suggest. It's a way to galvanize people. Mm -hmm. It's a way to bring racism front and center. So we have to look at it. We see what's going on and we have to say no. How can we in this year be fighting for the rights of African Americans to vote? It is obscene. And therefore, I think it's an issue that can and will galvanize people. See, you almost did a movie version of the press conference I wanted to do the day after the Stacey Abrams election, <laughs> which is have the Democrats go find, for example, four African American voters. But it doesn't have to be African American, but it, but largely they targeted African Americans, right? Bring them to a press conference and say he was denied the vote, yep. right to vote. She was denied the right to vote. This is an Outrage! Are you going to allow Americans to vote or are you not? I want the Republicans to come out here and say they are against these people. And so they didn't do that, but you did do this movie. And, that's, <laughs> and it's filled with just that. It's, it's person after person after person. You have them on your show, they're incredible, they're eloquent, they're lovely. We want them to speak around the country, we want them to do press conferences and make them available. Because that's where what we do in terms of film and storytelling is off the charts powerful. It's one thing to read something, it's another thing to know the numbers. But when you're looking at an 89 year old man and he says, I should be allowed to vote, it's a whole other thing. A woman talks, a young woman talks about, she used to go when her parents would vote and it was so exciting to her. She says, little me, and then she goes for the first time. Yep, you guys gotta check it out, it's called Suppress the Fight to Vote. And like I said, we'll have the link down below on YouTube and Facebook in the description box, bravenewfilms.org slash suppress. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, really appreciate thank it. you.
All right, guys, when we come back, we got a post game for you guys. We got more clips of Jamie Raskin fighting back against Donald Trump. I love it. Uh, uh, more, a little bit more talk about the Democratic Party, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and how more effectively they can fight back. But all that's for the members, tyt.com slash join and become a member, get the last half hour of the show. All right, we'll see you there. <laughs>